Okay, a couple of things. Lynn Button. Who is Lynn Button? Lynn, I, mani- I met, was in Harrogate for a couple of days in the week at New Wine Leaders. And New Wine is an organization that serves churches around the nation, very similar to ours. And somebody said to me, you must meet Lynn Button. I thought we ought to because she's coming to visit us in a couple of weeks. And so I met this lady and she is a... Um, first thing that struck me about Lynn is that she's a mature lady, which is good, but she is a funky, funky dresser. So she has amazing white boots. She used to be a fashion model, and she can see into your soul. So I said to Lynn, would you mind praying for me? And I thought, I need to spend the night in deep repentance and confession and she prayed with me, and she is the most lovely, she's from London, mate, so speaks like that, and she really hears from God, and she has an amazing story of transformation in her life. And so if you're able to come, we're opening up to other churches as well, if you'd like someone to pray with you, or you're just interested in how, how does all this stuff work, we'd love to encourage you to come to um, this day with Lynn. It is going to be really, really special. She's bringing a team. They've been praying already. They sense that there's stuff that God wants to do uh, with us. So do come if you can. And then the second thing is, um, do you ever have moments where you kind of just realize your age? Do you? Yeah? Well, mine came at New Wine Leaders where I went with Luke Graham, our, our curate. And he's a cool dude. And we arrived quite late, so we were sat in the auditorium. And a friend of mine uh, was on the platform, a guy called Ben Doolan, who some of you will know, he was here many years ago. And I thought, because I have a weird sense of humor, I thought, I'll take a picture of Ben and I'll WhatsApp him and I'll say, I can see you. (laughs) Okay? Now, of course, he will have seen that it's from me and think, why has he done that? But at the time, it seemed like a funny thing to do. So I positioned the phone... And I got, I zoomed in, and I thought, I've got the perfect shot. Now, bearing in mind, it was a kind of ministry, holy moment, right? So really, the phone should have been away. So it's a holy moment, and it's really dark. And my flash is really bright. (laughs) And I didn't realize it was on. And Luke Graham just turned to me with a look that I think I must have given people in older generations. And just said, you lunatic, what are you doing? <laughs> and I thought, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I, I was so embarrassed. It was just this moment, I've arrived at middle age. I can't take a picture without setting off the flash. So I felt really, really humbled and really humiliated. And, and he said to me, he said, do you want me to show you how... <laughs> Do you want me to show you how you turn off the flash? And so I thought, yeah, well, that would be, might be helpful, actually. So, so there you go. There you go, folks. There you go. So, folks, we're in the season of Lent, and if, you are, if you're visiting and you're, you're not part of our church, we are joining with millions and millions of other believers around the world who mark this particular time, the run-up from Ash Wednesday through to Easter Sunday. And for us, what we do is we've got these lovely uh, stained glass windows, and and we cover them because it symbolizes that that Lent is a season where we strip stuff back. We, We, traditionally, people would fast. They would, there would be things that they would give up. 
things that they would no longer do, to ask the Lord to reveal where it is our identity and trust has been misplaced. And so for that's particularly the Anglican Church, it's the Roman Catholic Church, it's the Orthodox Church, that set aside this particular period of time. And for us, the Bible verse that we're hanging out on is Hosea 10.12, which is about breaking up the unplowed ground. And we're asking the Lord, what does it mean for us to step into freedom? And the Bible passage that we are tracking through is Psalm 23. And if you weren't here last week, I would just encourage you to go to our YouTube channel. There's an amazing speaker, Nick Latimer, who's, going to, who's the vicar of Christchurch Stannington. And he is going to be uh, taking the graph team in a couple of weeks. They're leaving here to make that church their home, and he's an amazing guy. And what he bought was so amazingly rich. So I do think, if you can, you should listen to what it is he had to say. And if you remember, he started this question. He started with this question. He said, how is it with your soul? And it was a really packed a punch. Like, how is it with your soul? What is the soul? The soul is our mind, includes our body, it's our emotions, what the Bible often calls the heart. It's the seat of how we make decisions. It's everything. So how is your soul? Is it well? And today, we're going to think about what it means to trust God with our future. And in order to ask that question... I want to ask us, each of us, a question. Is he your shepherd? Is he your shepherd? Is he the one that leads you? Maybe he did a while ago. But is he today? I'm going to ask the question, I'm going to think about it. How do you get to a place, if my voice will get there, that we say with all sincerity, you are my shepherd? So I'm going to read Psalm 23. I'm going to take a swig of water. Just smile at the person next to you just to break any slightly awkward atmosphere. Okay, listen to these words if you can. These words will be pretty famous because they're read at funerals particularly, but just well known. It's possibly one of the most famous psalms written by King David. So listen to these words, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. 
for your rod are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of the markers of this incredibly beautiful, moving psalm is the first two words. The Lord, Adonai, Hebrew, is my shepherd. For us to understand that the role and nature of a shepherd feels a little bit odd. But to, to, the, to the ancient world, it wasn't. A shepherd was a consistent part of everyday life. Sheep were a source of food, but they were also the source of material, but they were the source of people's assets and money, so they needed to be looked after. So shepherding was, under, was a key facet of the culture in which David is writing. The idea of a shepherd is, is, is familiar for the Jewish people because as God led his people from Egypt through the promised land, it is the, the, the analogy is that God has shepherded his people to their place where they now dwell. And a shepherd does two things. A shepherd provides, so a shepherd leads the sheep to the place of pasture. He leads to the, to the sheep to the place where they can be refreshed, they can drink. He, the shepherd notices the sheep. The shepherd is aware of the physicality, that they're aware of the weather, um, the elements, um, to make sure that they can function, that they're healthy. And yet the shepherd also protects the, anybody moving sheep around in a desert, and this is the context where this is written, it is in a desert place, moving shepherd, sheep is a tough line of work. So people might, you, you may be robbed, but you're also likely to get predators. Even now, the Bedouin describe wolves, they're called Iranian wolves. Um, I'm not quite sure why, I don't know. But wolves will come and attack the sheep. So you've got to be ready. So that's what the shepherd does. It's a tough job. So David is, is, is writing, drawing back on his own experiences and saying that the Lord, he's, he's my shepherd. Not only is he the shepherd of the people of Israel in this kind of huge meta sense, but it says he's my shepherd. This is my experience of walking with God. And the question, you know, you might have heard, when you come to church for a while, you hear the same sermons, don't you? And if you come here, you hear my same stories. And sometimes if you hear a familiar passage, it's like, well, what am I, what am I going to learn from this? And I think we, we need to ask the question, what's the perspective that the Holy Spirit wants to bring to us today? And for me, I'm really struck by understanding Psalm 23 in the light of Psalm 22, listen to this. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's cheery, right? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of my anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Verse 6, he says this, But I am a worm and not a man. If you're kind of familiar with the story of Job, very similar, scorned by everyone, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And he goes on to say in verse 16, you should read it, it's pretty amazing. Verse 16, dogs surround me. Now I like dogs, but I don't think it means like this. A pack of villains encircles me. Just listen to these words, the, 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 the foretaste of the crucifixion. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. So how do you get from that, which is a devastatingly honest account of somebody who is in the pit of life, it really is. It's, it's the account of somebody who is experiencing humiliation. It's the account of somebody who is experiencing profound pain. And it's the experience of somebody for whom all of that stuff now means that they question the God that they loved and question his very presence with them. And of course we know that it becomes the heart cry of Jesus on the cross. So how do you get from that place, which if we're brutally honest, we have experienced, or maybe are experiencing right now, so deep, that it's hard to talk about it. So how do you get that to the cheerful? The Lord's my shepherd. I lack nothing. Let me tell you what I think we can think about today. And that is the place of the desert. The context 
for these psalms are set in the desert. The desert is this arid, dry, dangerous place. In the desert, it is the place where the people of Israel traverse for 40 years. It's the place where Moses spends 40 years in isolation. It's the place of all the greats throughout Scripture, including Jesus and even the Apostle Paul, spend time. It means where everything is stripped away. Everything that we have placed our foundation and our hope in is taken from us. All the security, all the affirmation, all the stuff that brings us life, which is not based on Jesus Christ. Or it's all the bits that we have begun to embrace, but become to worship or to, to build trust in or build our identity in. It's all gone. It all goes. And we know that that is David's own personal story. Even after God, that he's spoken over his life and said, you will become king, we know that he is then spends years in the desert in agony and pain, pursued by the person he once served. And in that place, he comes to the end of himself. The desert is the place of death. It's a place of desolation. And this is what happens in the desert. When you come to the very end of yourself, you realize that Jesus is the only one who can do three things. We can do more than that because he's Jesus, but you know what I mean. He can meet you in it. He can heal you through it. And he will comfort you throughout it. Why? Because he did it. He did it. We don't pray to one who is not familiar with pain. And what happens in church life, speaking from some personal experience, when we experience these challenges, we count ourselves out. I can't do it because I've got pain in my life. I can't hear from God. I can't do stuff for him. And yet, if we understand the nature of Jesus, it's the thing that when it happens in our life, and when we realize we're in the desert, we say, Jesus, this is an aspect of you I never knew. That you can meet me in my most profound place of vulnerability and need, and you love me. My walk with you is transformed because I'm in the pit, but you reign. Life makes no sense, but you are beautiful. You, I've done all this stuff, but I've tried my own way and it hasn't worked, but you've met me in the S-H-I-T. It's a Greek word. You know my name. And David's like, when people are mocking him and saying things all about him, it's like, you, God, are the one that loves me. It's your approval that I need. When life is uncertain, and I don't know what all the things that haven't worked out, it's like, God, you are the one thing that is consistent. It doesn't matter about the other stuff. And you only have that deep internal revelation in the middle of the desert. And it's weaved through Scripture. And we don't always see it. And what happens is we find ourselves in the desert. And we get disappointed because life isn't going the way we want it to. 
And sometimes the Spirit of God is saying, you are right where I want you to be. Because Jesus does not wear a red suit, have a big white beard, and go, ho, ho, ho. He's not Disney, he's not some Disney king that makes all our dreams come true. He wants us holy. And he wants us to do what he wants us to do. These three things about the desert. Firstly is this. Dependence in the desert, number one, dependence is settled. You come to the end of yourself and you say, I can no longer do this by myself. I need you, God. That means we surrender pride. We check our ego. We confess our sin. We realize where we're building stuff in our own vain glories. We realize where we're trying to make a name for ourselves and not for him. And we realize when we give that up, he's greater than all those things anyway. and fulfills every desire and every need. And it's really when we ask the question, uh, Jesus, am I prepared to be a sheep in your presence? Am I prepared to relinquish control? Am I prepared to deal with my anger and my bitterness and my cynicism to be a humble, dependable sheep? Because if you're riddled with cynicism, you're probably not going to be submitted to the shepherd because you won't trust what he says when he says it because you know best. It means the striving of wanting to succeed. We say, I give that up and I choose to give it to you, the great shepherd. And ask the questions, what are the voices that are feeding me right now? Is it the voice of the shepherd? So in the desert, dependence is settled. Secondly, in the desert, as Nick talked about last week, it says this, he refreshes, or some translations say, he restores my soul. In the desert, intimacy is restored. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you something about sheep. I learned this. Absolutely fascinating. Sheep apparently do this thing called cast. Right? Does anybody know about this? I could just make it up there because no, no one knows. I read it on the internet, and as Abraham Lincoln once said, everything you read on the internet is true. Okay. Well, apparently sheep can... Um, uh, they, well, they grow wool, folks, actually, in case you're wondering. So they, they, can, they can get heavy. They can get top-heavy. So they can get... They, they can, if, they don't, if their coats aren't dealt with or shorn, whatever it is you do, shave it off, shorn the sheep, I've watched enough of it. Anyway, um, they get top-heavy. Uh, or if, if, if they're pregnant or they take on too much water or if they eat too much too quickly, they fill with gas. Not that kind of gas, although it could be pretty bad, I suppose. And what happens is they become so top-heavy, if they stumble, and especially if you're in a rocky terrain like this, they fall over. And when they, it sounds, it shouldn't, it, I find it funny, it's not good really, but when they fall over, their little legs, they go in and they can't get up. They're stuck, right? So you can imagine you're on your back, giving it large, trying to wiggle around, you, you, you really can't get up. So um, if it's in a very hot climate, like the one that, King David's describing here, they don't have long till they die. Or they're taken out by a predator. And you think if you're a wolf and you see one upside down, fair game. So um, this is fairly common, apparently, in the sheep world. Country files on later, you can check, check my facts. 
So the sheep, when it's cast, is at its most vulnerable. It can do nothing for itself. And what happens is, and the Bedouins still do this, God love YouTube, haven't you? You really have. Uh, what they do is they pick up the sheep and they put it on their shoulders over the, like over, you know, one, two legs. I say one leg there, one there. No, two there, two there. And, they, and, and I was thinking about this because we have a, a Labrador, not a sheep, obviously, but um, she's a proper dog. Not these little ones that you put in bags or they're not dogs, folks. Don't buy them. Buy a cat. I just feel like I need to get that out there, okay? It just bothers me, aggravates me. Um, and there are times when I do lift up our dog, if the back is okay. But she's 27 kilograms. She's pretty heavy. Now, sheep are bigger than a Labrador. So you just think about that for a moment. So the shepherd sees that the sheep is upside down, legs kicking in the air. The sheep can't do anything. It can't save itself. All it can do is put itself at the mercy and the will of the shepherd. And the shepherd doesn't just turn it over and say, get out of it. Don't do it again. Don't do that. What the shepherd does is, in tenderness, picks it up sit on his shoulder and what they do is they massage the legs and what that does is it helps deal with the gas how that works I don't know but it gets the blood flowing back through the sheep they restore its life so when the sheep is at its most Vulnerable place. The shepherd comes so close. So close that he carries it on his shoulder. Jesus, of course, says, I am the good shepherd, and he carries us on the cross because we can't do it. And he walks with that massive, heavy lump on his back to restore it into life. And what happens in the desert is at the lowest point. And David would have seen the sheep lying on the back and he would have lifted it up, put it up. And he's like, God, in my lowest points, that's what you do for me. And he's doing, done that and doing that for me. And if you let him, he'll do that for you. In our greatest vulnerability, the shepherd isn't harsh and wag his finger, but comes with kindness in this act of beautiful, beautiful love. And in verse 4, it says this, no, it's verse 3b, sorry, it says, He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. As the shepherd carries the sheep in this image of beautiful intimacy. We realize that in the same way the sheep can't turn itself over, we realize that we are loved. 
You are loved. I am loved. That the shepherd knows your name. There's my name. And what that does is, when we are exposed to the profound love of Jesus at our most intimate moment, it melts our hearts. And you cannot but come before him. Well, you can actually, you can resist it. You cannot really become, but my own experience is, it's so profoundly beautiful. You can't but fall in love with the shepherd. And you begin to take what he says about you over and above what other people say about you. You see, in the desert, identity is confirmed. And as we walk with him, he guides us in the ways that we wish to go, the, the right paths, the paths of righteousness, also known as. That we, our desires begin to change. Uh, old things that we, we, we felt once we used to be an issue in the desert, they become transformed. And he, God changes our desires. He releases us into new things. And then he says this. For his name's sake. That is a, just a couple of, couple of words, but within the scriptural narrative, it's absolutely massive. That, that as, as the shepherd throws the sheep on, as he restores him in this beautiful way, that as the shepherd restores the sheep's identity, as our identities are restored, we recognize that we are restored for the thing that God created us to do. And the thing that God created us to do is to bring glory to his name. The thing that God has created us to do, I believe as a church, to, is to be a church that is for the city. It's to send people out. It's to plant churches. And we'll think more and more and then later what it looks like to, send, to do that in our homes in all kinds of different ways. But it's how, it's how we come alive. And we look and smell like him. And it's a work of grace that he does in us and through us in the most profoundly beautiful way. So we become like him. For his name, the name of God is profoundly holy that our lives begin to echo him. So how do you know you're in the desert? There was a, Clarissa and I worked in Cambridge for a couple of years, and there was a, a young, there was a guy on our team called Chris, and he'd been a student in Sheffield. And he's actually from the West Midlands. There's a theme. And <laughs> he really latched onto this desert theme in a big way. So remember, he had a bit of a long-term relationship. Well, long distance. Well, long distance wasn't that far. He lived in Cambridge. His girlfriend at the time lived in Oxford. Anyway, for him, it was a long-term, long-distance relationship. Long-term because they got married. And so sometimes he'd often say, "I'm just, I'm just in the desert." <laughs> or there was one time where he couldn't get his favourite flat white. 
And he's like, I'm just really in the desert place. And so after a while, we started to just take the mick out of him. So something didn't go right. We say, you in the desert, Chris, doesn't it? So, so, so how do we know? Because I was very affirming and loving in that way. But. <laughs> do you know, where, life, crazy stuff happens all the time. It does. But often, whether in the desert is how we respond to the moment. It's whether we say, God, this is a situation is really unbelievably hard, but I'm choosing with faith in my fingernails to say, I trust that you're going to work in this. And it's about having people come around you and, and help you and to, to realize that, that in a bit like we sang that song earlier, um, uh, what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. We can only say that if our hearts are yielded to the Lord. Because if our hearts aren't yielded to the Lord, in the midst of the desert, we miss the lesson. And you might be here today and you're angry. Or you're cynical. You're fed up with church. I hear that all the time. Don't come. (laughs) It's what I think sometimes. We don't like, we don't want to come. Be released. Or there's some deep heartache and it makes no sense. The thing that stops us, folks, is, is the cultural narrative that God, that the, that the world, or, or even God, owes you happiness. He doesn't. But he wants to make us holy. And what that means is sometimes we have to surrender the dreams and aspirations or the idols that we have created and we are angry because God hasn't blessed, done the blessing on our terms. So we need to, in this season, it might be, God, I'm, I'm just not feeling your presence. We just need to give that up, break up that unplowed ground. Many people who are facing the most terrible things right now just seems overwhelmingly difficult and maybe Jesus is saying my hands are scarred there's a hole in my side you can trust me let me carry you and as I carry you you will experience my love for you So how do we get to say, in our heart cry, the Lord is my shepherd? We go through the desert. Because when we go through the desert, we meet the redeeming power of Jesus. Want more joy? More Lord. Go through the desert. There's great joy in a place of pain. In fact, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Want more freedom? Go through the desert. More intimacy with the Lord? Go through the desert. Break up the up plow ground. Let's pray.